This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. My name is Christopher. I'm one of the leaders here at God First, and we are continuing with our series through the book of Acts. And um, we're coming into the home stretch of the book. This is our second last one. To be fair, the back end of Acts is not normally where we spend a lot of time, just in our general devotional life. Um, and the passage that, that we're kind of digging into this morning, and uh, I texted out, hey guys, have a read through this for context, uh, because it's a big chunk of Scripture. Um, it's just different. It's not like full of Jesus everywhere as we would normally like and all that sort of thing. But equally, I think because of that, there's something I've definitely thought, I haven't seen this before. I haven't, I haven't lived and learned this yet. And I, I feel there's an encouragement for us out of this passage that maybe we, we haven't connected with before. And so I'm excited about that. Um, but I'm equally excited about the series coming up that we'll do kind of building up into Easter, which uh, is all about the, the motifs of the cross. Uh, I don't know what the name of the series is, but that's going to be Jesus-y, gospel-y. It's going to be awesome building up towards Easter. So if you have any friends or family you want to invite to that, it, uh, it's going to be a winner. Um, if I could just have the map up behind me, please. We are, uh, we've been following the journey of the Apostle Paul and his merry men uh, and women as they kind of followed on in their, their mission journeys. And behind me is the, the third and final mission journey of Paul. And we've followed him across modern-day Syria. Uh, we followed, you know, that, that he calls Asia, uh, sorry, Syria, Turkey, um, over into uh, Macedonia, down into Greece, and, uh, and back again a couple of times. And last week, Howard preached in Acts 19 with uh, the riot that sort of erupted in Ephesus because there was such a big part of the town, the population, coming to faith in Jesus and stopping their idol worship and the worship of the Greek gods, and it had somehow caused a massive economic and social upheaval. And uh, that's where we were last week, looking at the idols of the Greeks and the idols of our own hearts. And today, we look at this kind of often undervalued part of Paul's journey, which is part of his third mission journey to Jerusalem. So, Paul's journey to Jerusalem. And um, we read in Acts 20 that following the riot <laughs> in Ephesus, uh, Paul heads back over into Europe. Um, he spends a few months strengthening the churches there and the disciples there. And then Paul heads back via Troy, via Ephesus again for Jerusalem. And there's this incredibly poignant, beautiful 
conversation, interaction, prayer between the Ephesian elders and Paul. And part of the conversation in Acts 20 goes like this. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they had come and when they came to him he said to them, and now behold I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. We're going to use and hear that phrase a lot this morning. Constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and my ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. He spent three years with these guys in one chunk of time in Ephesus. They knew him and loved him, and he knew and loved them. Very poignant. And we're made aware that by the Holy Spirit, Paul is constrained. He is bound in the Spirit. He is compelled by the Spirit. He knows he has to go to Jerusalem. What we also see is that Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is made aware that in every place, or has been made aware in every place he goes, that if he goes to Jerusalem, he will face imprisonment and hardship and afflictions. So far in the, the story of Acts, we met Agabus, who was a, a prophet in Acts 11. And he prophesied that there would be a famine in the area of Judea, uh, or including the area of Judea, and that Jerusalem and the church in Jerusalem particularly would suffer greatly during this period. And in response to the prophecy in Acts 11, Paul and Barnabas, uh, among the others, um, begin the work of gathering money and supplying and supporting the Jerusalem church. This prophecy was given in around 42 AD, okay? So, a couple of years after Jesus' death. And by the time we get to Paul returning on, after his third mission journey to Jerusalem, it's about 59 AD, so we're talking, what, 13 years, 14, is that about right? Yeah? 17 years, sorry. Um, and by this stage, the famine in Judea is in full swing. And we have written accounts in, in many of the, the epistles where Paul writes to the Galatians and the Romans, the Corinthians particularly, where he's urging generosity from these Gentile churches. So we know the phrase, um, you know, excel in the grace of giving. And we often apply it to our own giving. You know, let's excel in the grace of giving. Actually, this phrase and that encouragement relates to this specific need in the Judean church in Jerusalem, that the Gentile churches need to be generous in their support of the church there. Paul and his entourage have, during this final mission trip, 
And clearly on the map, we saw he went from Ephesus up through Macedonia, back down through Greece and back again. He would have gone about collecting more funds to support the work in Jerusalem. And no doubt, this is part of the constraint of the Spirit, is taking this much-needed supply to Jerusalem. But let's continue reading in Acts 21, verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven. We know about Philip from earlier in Acts, and we stayed with him. And he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. We've, we know about Agabus. Same Agabus who'd prophesied about the famine. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to imprison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Again, very, very moving, very poignant words, interactions. And this is the first of my two points this morning. We again hear these prophetic words, the prophetic gift in action through the Holy Spirit. Philip's daughters, no doubt. Agabus again warning Paul that he will be arrested and handed over to the Romans and urging him not to go. And again, Paul, just through tears and heartache, could not be dissuaded from going because he was constrained by the Spirit. We've got these two things at play. He is warned by the Spirit of hardships that lie ahead, and yet he is constrained by the Spirit. Do you see the the tension and the challenge here. Does the warning of hardship contradict the fact that he should obey the constraint, the calling of God on his life? Should the warning of hardship contradict the constraint of the Spirit? What do you think? I think the Apostle Paul would say, of course not. In fact, on a good day, I think we'd probably say, of course not. Let the will of the Lord be done. There have been times in my life when I have sadly chosen not to obey the constraint of the Spirit because of the warnings of hardship. And if you're anything like me, You've probably experienced these times as well. I've avoided hardship 
and and suffering of many kinds by not obeying God's voice. And that's been true in dealing with the sin in my life. And at times I've, I've enjoyed sin more than I've enjoyed Jesus. And I've paid the price for that. And so have the ones that I love. And I, I've also avoided hardships by not obeying God when He calls me to do good things that are necessary for the good of others because they felt like hard work. <laughs> oh, maybe it's just me. It was hard work, or, or, or it would make me look weird or weak even in the eyes of other people. I've chosen not to obey. And if we're honest, there are the times when I've done that and when I've lived like that and responded like that, that I've probably felt most disconnected from God and from people. Well, Paul's response to the constraint of the Spirit whilst being aware of the warnings, I think offers us such a a precious opportunity, a moment of reflection again this morning. Consider our lives. Consider your life. Consider your followership of Jesus. Consider your joyful obedience when the Holy Spirit speaks and leads and constrains you toward a certain goal. On the other hand, I've experienced, and I suspect so many of you have experienced similar things to Paul as, and have responded similarly to Paul as well in times. Um, Lorette and the kids and I have, have some sense of that in, in our experience in life. And, you know, we felt called and constrained, compelled by God to, to leave South Africa, our home country, and come to Europe, make disciples, help plant and strengthen churches here, churches that preach the gospel and help people move forward in their journey of faith towards Him. And at the same time, we've been acutely aware of the hardship that we will face because of this step of obedience. And many of you will have experienced similar things in your followership of God. And you too, probably like us, would have, at the same time of wrestling with the obedience, the constraint, and following through with it and obeying it, you also experience what Paul has done time and time again in our experience that actually we experience a depth and a richness of the grace and mercy of God that is second to none, and an inexpressible joy being close to Jesus and enjoying Him like never before. Experience has shown us, and and many of you, I'm sure, that obedience to the will of God, especially in the face of hardship, opens the door to these immeasurably 
deep storehouses of God's grace and His mercy. And the Bible teaches us that this grace of God doesn't take us out of the hardships, does it? It does, however, sustain us through it to the point of coming out on the other end. And in 2 Corinthians 12, again, the same Apostle Paul, it's one of his letters to church there, he speaks about boasting in his weakness because God's grace was sufficient and that his power, his strength was made perfect in weakness. The reality is the Bible speaks very bluntly against disobedience, against strong people, against the rich, against self-sufficiency. And I don't mean there's anything wrong with those things, but if our hope and our joy and our identity is found in that, there are strong words against it. He speaks strongly against insulated bomb shelter people, but the Bible equally is full of stories of grace and mercy and strength to those who are weak and who are strengthened in their God and do great exploits because of His strength. And He receives the glory and the honor. And we lean into the strength of God when, despite our own weaknesses and despite the dangers and the consequences, we still joyfully and humbly submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit. And Paul lived this time and time again. He famously says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Oh, I love that. I, wanna, I want that on my gravestone one day. Strength in human terms is short-lived. It's temporary, and it's ultimately meaningless. All those human strength characteristics that we can strive for sometimes. And the things that, humanly speaking, are foolish and weak are the things that really matter in an eternal perspective. This is why Jesus is foolishness to those who don't know him. Maybe if you're exploring your way towards faith this morning, you can relate to that. There's a part of Jesus that just seems foolish, and that's understandable. But to us who have been saved, who've been brought from death to life, for us who've experienced Jesus' life that has brought forgiveness and set us free from sin and death, to us whose eyes have been opened, whose spirits and hearts He's made alive by His own resurrection, power and life pulsing through us, to us He is in and of Himself our greatest treasure and reward. The one who spoke all things into existence is so much more infinitely precious than any of the created things that we love to pursue. Our deepest joy and our satisfaction is found, should be found, can be found by Him 
and by being known by Him, and by being loved by Him. I love Paul's encouragement this morning, the love of the Father, the love of Jesus Christ, the love of the Spirit, by being loved by Him. And for all eternity, being able to lay down our crowns, our glories before Him, and to praise Him appropriately. And we can learn, that's the good news, is that we can learn to respond positively to the constraints of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I've learned that increasingly. I'm sure you have as well. As we approach taking possession of the, the chapel building as, um, as a kind of a midweek hub and a space, an office space for us, to be able to minister and reach out and be a blessing and do group life in. There's a natural moment to ask ourselves, what is my place in God's story through God first? If you consider yourself a God firster, hey, let's ask ourselves that question. What's my place as a disciple maker? What is my place as a missionary of God? What's my place as a resourcer of the work of God? Where are the areas of my life that the Spirit is constraining me, is urging me, is appealing to me to dig into things? The beautiful thing about being God's people is that He is and will be speaking to us. So if you think, I I don't know, He is speaking, and He will speak, and He will lead you into those things. God doesn't just want Sunday attenders and group attenders. God wants our Sundays and our, our group life to put faith in us and joyfully help us as we look each other in the eye and we get to know each other heart to heart to spur one another on to pursue the constraints of the Spirit, to allow the constraints of the Spirit to draw us deeper into His story. And graciously, God does offer us a place in His story. He doesn't need us. He could go, and it will be so. Because of His grace and love, He offers us a place in His story. Because it's good for us, and we get to know Him intimately and one another intimately as we lean into him know him as our all sufficiency and he offers us a place where we can impact and make a real difference your life makes a difference there are things that god has uniquely called you and you alone to walk in and there will be a constraint of the Spirit on those things. And seasons of life come and seasons go, and we just want to be sensitive to those constraints right here and right now. The application for us at this point is, I think, two very simple things. Unlike Paul's friends who had misunderstood the constraints of the Spirit and the warnings of the Spirit, and told him not to obey the constraints, to rather resist. We must help 
I say must. We must help each other to follow the constraints of the Lord, no matter where it leads. And secondly, we must follow the constraints of the Lord in our lives, no matter where it leads. It's basic. It's 101. And yet so hard. But when we do this, we will live more worshipfully, more reliant on the Lord, more on the edge of His calling. It's comfortable in the middle. It's comfortable when we're not pressing out and pushing towards the edge. It's only on the edge where we need the strength of the Lord, the comfort of the Lord, the grace of the Lord, the mercy of the Lord to sustain us. It's only on the edge where His strength is made perfect in our weakness, and He receives the glory. Anywhere else, man, look at me, ain't I great? It's when I'm on the edge that He gets the glory. For our second point out of our passage, I want to talk about why Paul felt constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. So let's read a a chunk of chapter 21 together. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. So this is Luke writing the book of Acts. Luke is clearly in this conversation right now, in the room. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. So this is now James and the elders in Jerusalem recounting to Paul the state of affairs in Jerusalem. There are thousands of Jews who are believing in the name of the Lord Jesus, and they are zealous for the law. And they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done, they ask. They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow, which is a three-month process of cleansing and trusting God and hearing from God. They're coming to the end of their vow period. These, take these men and purify yourselves along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads, which is part of the, the final ritual of, the, in fact, during the three months, they don't cut their hair or their beards. This is the moment they cut their hair and their beards and they come in clean new, fresh before the Lord, um, so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they've been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been 
sacrifice to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. We've read that in Galatians 3. Then Paul took the men, these four men, and the next day he purified himself with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each of them. And when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, the Jews from Ephesus, where Paul had caused a riot, okay, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place, the temple. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Bringing a Gentile into the temple was a death sentence. They mistakenly thought that Trophimus, the Ephesian, who was with him in the city, had been brought into the temple. Then all the city were stirred up, and the people ran together, and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and, once, and at once the gates were shut. I mean, it's wild. Yeah, okay. No wonder the Spirit told you everywhere that this is going to go badly. But first up, you'll notice there's nothing said here about the money. Let's get that one out the way. We're, we're sure that this was an important part of Paul's constraint to come to Jerusalem. But for Paul, there is something more important and larger at play than just money. We see Paul is immediately confronted with an issue here in, this mother, in the mother church in Jerusalem. Because the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem and the regular Jews were still looking and acting very similarly to one another at this point in the church history. It seems that Christians, those who are following Christ, Jesus, they still attended temple worship, they still sacrificed, they still followed the Jewish customs and traditions and rituals. They washed and their ceremonial practices were the same. They circumcised their newborn sons, and they were themselves circumcised. Paul's arrival in Jerusalem seems to have really stirred up a, a bit of a hornet's nest, which was somewhat quiet until then. And the solution to this issue, as suggested by James and the elders, was to join in the ritual cleansing ceremony with four others and then go to the temple together to worship and show everyone through this act, almost an act of contrition, I think James and the elders are asking for, that he had not renounced his Jewish roots and his Jewish heritage, and that he had, in fact, not gone full Gentile. He must never go full Gentile. The um, Jerusalem church and the Jews there wanted Paul and the Gentile Christians who were with him to demonstrate that they were still united to the old, well-trodden paths of Judaism. And we're starting to get close now to, the, to Paul's reason for coming to Jerusalem, especially when you add in the sentence 
in Paul's defense after he's been arrested. And this sentence kicks off a whole lot of stuff. So in, a few, in chapter 22, we read, And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments as those of those who killed him. At this point, everyone's still listening. This is the end of his really great talk. And then he says in verse 21, And he said to me, he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they'd listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. What on earth is going on here? What is, it, what is the real issue that's triggered the Jewish people and that Luke is giving us hints to Paul's deeper purpose in Jerusalem? I think many of the Christians here in Jerusalem felt that Jesus was a Jewish Messiah, the Jewish Savior, and to follow Him meant remaining close to and united to their Jewish brothers, their Jewish heritage and culture and way of life. And the idea that the great Saul who'd studied under Gamaliel, the great Pharisee teacher, would somehow abandon his own people and preach that the Jewish Messiah was available to the Gentiles felt like absolute heresy to many people living in Jerusalem. The Bible Project commentators think that Paul's constraint by the Spirit to come to Jerusalem was to bring to this mother church the truth about unity. Not a unity to the old ways and old customs and traditions, but a new unity created by the gospel of Jesus. And the money that Paul brought to the church in Jerusalem that had been gathered from all over the known world, from the poorest Christians in the poorest churches, he wanted to use that to serve as a, as a doorway to start this conversation. It seems understandably, uh, that there was an elitism developing in Jerusalem and even in the church. And Paul wanted to challenge that. And the idea of these poor people from these poor churches all over the world bringing money and supporting the mother church in Jerusalem, Paul hoped would be a, a practical solution that would bring in a spiritual truth to them. Now, there's obviously an idealist in Paul. He actually believes the gospel message. He believes the message that Jesus dying for all people and offering forgiveness from sin and eternal life to all people means that all are equal before God. All are equal before God. And therefore, this spiritual equality and the, the hierarchy that the, the Jewish, uh, the Jerusalem church was trying to build was a false hierarchy, an evil hierarchy even. To the Galatians, the church in, churches in Galatia, Paul wrote, 
For in Christ Jesus you were all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. All around the world, all around the known world, the gospel message has been tearing down dividing walls, has been uniting people as heirs to the promise of Jesus Christ by faith. Jerusalem, that's not happening. Think about Philemon and his former slave Onesimus worshiping together as equals. Think about Lydia and the wealth, a wealthy business lady and a former Roman soldier and a former slave girl in Philippi worshiping together as equals. The gospel of Jesus' love for all people was a spiritual truth that was changing the physical reality on the ground, the way in which people related in unity to one another. And Paul's desire was that the church in Jerusalem, and indeed his brothers, his Jewish brothers and sisters that he still desperately loves, would also experience this as the very best way to live out Christ. I wonder what would Paul desire to see here in God first if he was looking for the signs of unity? Well, there should be people worshiping together who are different. Different jobs, different ages, stages of life, different income levels, different cultures, different parts of the town, different languages, and dare I say, different personalities. Sure. All together in genuine community, worshiping together. And I think, and I'm biased, but I I think we're headed in a good direction. I think we're headed in a really positive direction, God first. Diversity and inclusivity wasn't made up by the woke brigade. It was first and ultimately created by Jesus himself to demonstrate the manifold wisdom of God, we read in Ephesians. The power of the gospel to make all things new and to break the power of sin in the individual's life, the, the corporate life of people, so that it can impact the world around us. Sin separates. Sin insulates. Sin breaks down. Sin destroys and brings death. And this is why the unity of Jesus' people is such an essential part of God's love into a broken world. Paul wanted that for the Jerusalem church so badly. He was constrained by the Spirit to go, to proclaim this, to live it out. To the Colossian church, Paul encouraged unity as godly actions based in the Word of God. We read in Colossians 3, here there is not Greek and Jew, 
circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you so that you also must forgive. Have you got a yo? Yeah, yo. And, also, and above all these, put on love. Oh, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Paul's expectation of the gospel and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that wherever Jesus is preached and the roots of the gospel take take root in people's hearts and lives and communities, unity grows as the communities of Jesus' followers increasingly put on his love for one another and increasingly live with this Christ-like character that he encourages here in Colossians. It's the character that, of the Word of God that dwells in them richly. Unity itself is not the goal. Unity in and of itself is not a goal. That's why football team and the unity around Liverpool, that's not the goal. It might be fun, but it's not the goal. It's unity with Christ and through Christ that is the goal. We will continue to grow, I know, as a diverse group of Jesus followers here at God First, as we continue to put on Christ and live those characteristics of Christ and to follow Him. The idealist in Paul and the idealist in us knows that this is good and healthy and natural and inevitable. It is also, as we see from Paul, essential. God First, as part of the aim for gospel unity, if you're new here, come to the Get Connected lunch next Sunday. Come join us. Get connected to one another. It's where we start living life in unity. We're shaping one another. If you're a regular, please sign up for a group. Get into a G1C. Get into a serving team. You can do both of those things at the welcome table right there. Groups, Sundays, and serving are some of the areas that we work out our unity in a, in a formal way. It's not the only way, it's one of the formal ways because we rub shoulders, we do life, we different people, different cultures, backgrounds, languages, learning to work together in unity of the gospel. And there are many informal ways to work it out. But this is part of what it means to be a God-firster. And when Jesus prays for his disciples in John chapter 17, he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. We know about Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. 
But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. Thank you, Jesus. That they also may be sanctified in truth. See, the unity of Christ and with Christ is a unity empowered by God so that we, through His Word and through community, the beauty of being together like this and in groups and serving and being on Cleve Hill together and going for coffee together and meals and all the beautiful informal things helps us to be sanctified in the truth. It keeps us consecrated, holy to God, and it builds a united oneness in gospel living. Is it easy? No. Absolutely not. But increasingly, living under the constraint of the Spirit that is at work in us and responding positively to the constraint of the Spirit is As we do this, Jesus is through our lives undoing the effects of sin in our lives. Sin separates, but Jesus unites. Jesus connects. Jesus builds up. Jesus makes all things new. Jesus is and brings eternal life to those who are in Christ Jesus by faith. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.